The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Start these kind of these kind of new seasons for us, and so there's two major times a year where that happens. One is New Year's Day, and then uh, the other time is sometime right after Labor Day. I, you can't really point to like the date that that happens, but, but something happens. Like, like how many of you had kind of a, a change in rhythm or a change in lifestyle or something like just started up in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Uh, and, and it's like, it's like uh, a Labor Day and it's like the new school year starts and it's like football season starts, and it's like the days are, are getting shorter, the traffic is getting longer, and it's like, okay, something is changing for us. So whatever it is, it seems like this time of year, it seems to change our rhythms a, a bit. But what I've realized is that whatever we're desiring, right, whatever we're pursuing, whatever we're striving for in this next season, it's not simply because we want to be busier, but rather because we have a desire to be better. We want to grow, don't we? I mean, we want to kind of be changed and transformed, and and we don't want to be uh, who we are or who we were 10 years ago. We want God to do something radically in us, and so when we talk about moving forward as a church, when we talk about taking next steps as a church, when we talk about connecting with community or joining a family or, or really going after, like, what God has for us next, we're not talking about doing something. We're talking about becoming someone. And so a biblical example of kind of this transformation in life, uh, we see in a character named David. And David is one of the most popular characters in all of the Bible. And and David, in 1 Samuel 13, is actually called a man after God's own heart. What a title, amen? I mean, that is such a powerful uh, uh, way to be, uh, to be referred to as a man after God's own heart. And so this past May, before the summer hit, we started uh, a season one of what's called uh, A Search for a King. And it was a nine-week series, and it went through the book of 1 Samuel. You can go online. You can get all of those. That season ended in July, but because of David's life, is actually told in two parts, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. I decided to not withhold from you like maybe Netflix does, uh, waiting till January to start the next season. But I thought, let's do it now because we're all starting a new season of life. And so today we're going to dive into season two, episode one, Search for a King. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel. And so the first chapters of 2 Samuel basically serve as kind of a recap to season one. So listen, if you miss season one, you're not going to be in the dark uh, because we're going to recap it today a little bit through the first couple uh, of chapters here. But what we're going to try and do is we're going to answer two specific questions that we see really through this whole book is one, why is David a man after God's own heart? I mean, if that is a title that we kind of strive for, like something we're aspiring to, what is it that makes David a man after God's own heart? And two, why is David not the king that we're looking for? So why is David a man after God's own heart, and why is David not the king 
we're looking for. Well, let me reiterate, there were some key players in 1 Samuel. One, Samuel. Samuel was the prophet of God. He was the last judge of Israel. He was the one who would lead the people and the nation uh, when there was no king. Well, in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel died. And so we don't get to see a lot of him, but he kind of paved the way for that. And so you see uh, Samuel, you see uh, the people, and the people are the, the nation of Israel. They're the ones who God makes the promises to. You have Saul, who is the king, God's, uh, our, the people's chosen king, and said, you know what, we want a king for ourselves, so they chose Saul. And then in 1 Samuel, you also are introduced to a shepherd boy named David. And David grows up in 1 Samuel, and God had promised the people a king. And when God promised the people of the king, they promised identity, God promised purpose, and God promised security. Now, if you think about those three things, that is exactly what we're all looking for, isn't it? We all want identity, we drive after purpose, and we want to be secure. And so this is really the promise that God gives us to say, hey, I'm going to satisfy those desires of your heart, that identity, that search for purpose, that, that search for, for security. I want to be your God. I will provide those things. And if you really wrap all of those things up, put them in a box and a bow on top, it's really called salvation. God says, I'm going to be your salvation. Now, if we're honest, we know that that's what every heart is searching for. We're searching for identity. We're searching for purpose. We're searching for security. And we're thinking that if we could have those things, then we would have salvation. We, that thing would finally save us. And so what a lot of people do is they say, okay, I'm going to search for the king of identity. I'm going to search for the king of purpose. I'm going to search for the king of, of security, and I'm going to search for those kings in all of these different ways. And the ways that our culture does it is we say, you know what I need is I need a lover. I need to be married. I need to find the, the, the final one that would satisfy the longings of my heart. So, so being married, having a relationship, that's my king. And then you get that king, and you say, you know what I really want? I want to have some kids. And so you search, you try, you're like, you know what's going to actually satisfy me is having some kids and having some family. And then we say, you know what, it's not necessarily that or that, it's, it's family, it's, it's grandkids. That's what I really want. And so we search and we're, we're saying, okay, I'm not satisfied, I don't have the real identity that I've really wanted, I don't have the security that I really want, I don't have the purpose, what I need is a little bit more and a little bit more. I need someone to care for me. And so others will say, you know what? That's not it at all. What you actually need is nothing or no one because purpose and security and happiness is actually found within. And so I find my strength and my value and my identity within myself. What I need for my king is more independence. I want to be strong in myself. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. What my king is is self-identity. For some, it's achievement or a career or education, if I could just learn a little bit more, if I could be knowledgeable, if I could be well-esteemed, if I could have a secure job, that's my king. Because through a secure job, I can have some secure money. 
And if I had some secure money, then I could have a good retirement account. And so we will search and long and chase and serve whatever we're searching for in a king. And so whatever that thing is that you seek for identity and purpose and security, that will be your king. That's the one you'll serve. That's the one you'll submit your life and your loyalty to. Whether you believe it or not, it's absolutely true. It's the driving force behind what you do. And so like many people today, the people of Israel, the nation, they didn't trust God to be their identity. They didn't trust God to give them purpose. They didn't trust God to be their security. They said, you know what? We're tired of waiting on you, God. We're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to elect our own king. We're going to go after our own purposes. We're going to try and find our own identity. And so they take matters into their own hands. And how does it go for them? It doesn't go well. They wanted their own king. Their hearts were broken. They find themselves in great defeat. In 1 Samuel, they find themselves in great oppression. It's just not working the way they thought it would work. And so then they thought, okay, David must be the answer. I mean, David must be the chosen one. David must be the one to bring balance back to the force because everything's falling apart. Surely David must be the savior king. Surely David must be the one we're searching for. But in these chapters of 2 Samuel, we're going to see that he's absolutely not that. So we left off in 1 Samuel on a sad note. King Saul and his son Jonathan have died, which was David's best friend. And they died both tragically in a battle with the Philistines and David, Meanwhile, is on the run, and so if you don't know the story, Saul was jealous of David and his anointing as the next king. And so Saul tried to constantly cast David out of the land, constantly chase David down, constantly tried to kill David. And so Saul and David were kind of in this, in this battle, and Saul was trying to um, um, off David, basically. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we kind of see this recap of how it's going to start. And it's some disturbing news, so be ready. Uh, we'll start in verse 2. It says, on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me, he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. So this is the first time that really David hears about his friend and his king are dead. Look in verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him, he said, by chance, you know, I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul. He was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. They were coming down the mountain, and then he looked behind him, and he saw me, and he called to me, and he answered, I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am a Malachite. And he said to me, stand besides me and kill me. Anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So he stood behind 
So I stood behind him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. That is a sign of just agony. We see it as a sign of of repentance And we see it as a sign of lament. And so this is just saying David was broken. David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all of the men who were with him. He mourned and he wept. So this is David hearing about what happened. He tore his clothes. He wept. And so what we know is that what happened to Saul and Jonathan is absolutely true. But we're not sure what this man is actually talking about because we know in 1 Samuel that, that a, a, a Saul was under distress. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. He wouldn't do it. And so Saul, he stabbed himself with his own spear. And so more likely, this Amalekite man was probably going through the land He's scavenging for treasure. He found some dead soldiers. He stumbled upon the king's body. And he's like, oh, look. An opportunity. This is King Saul. I, I maybe, maybe have some personal gain here. And so he thought, wouldn't David be excited if I brought him the, the crown? Wouldn't David really be excited if I, if I told him that his arch enemy, the one who was trying to kill him, is finally dead? I know I'm going to scavenge some of this stuff. I'm going to take it to David. Here's the crown. And he brings it to David. Look in verse 14. David said to him, how is it? that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, go and execute him, and he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David doesn't mess around with that. Now that sounds pretty extreme, right? Sounds pretty radical. And so if that's true, we have to ask, why Why is it that David then is a man after God's own heart? Well, I look through the text, I look through David's life, and, and, and really I find it comes down to these three things. And the first thing that we see is David is devoted to God's glory. And so let me just ask you, what do you live for? When you look at your time, when you look at your treasures, when you look at your talents, when you look at your life, your direction, your movement, like what is it that you actually live for? After David hears about Saul and his friend Jonathan, he he writes a eulogy, and that starts in in verse 17, and and, and he kind of mourns through his writing for uh, what has been lost. He grieves Saul's death, and he grieves that God's reputation in the land and beyond have fallen with Saul. Look at what he says in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. He's saying, your glory, 
It's your, your name, your name. They may celebrate in all of the lands about how the, the, the chosen king has fallen. This is not good for God's name. This is not good for Yahweh. He, he mourns that. David mourns what it means for God's reputation in the world more than what he does for his own reputation. You see, Saul's death was actually personally good for David. Do you see that? Because David was in line to be the king. And with Saul out of the picture, he could say, yes, finally, this is my time now. But that's not what he does. He actually mourns the loss. He says, this may defame the name of God. He doesn't even mention about the fact that he could be the new king. And how his own personal glory is not even on the list. And I tell you that because that is the defining factor of someone who, who is a man after God's own heart. How, how weighty is God's glory in your life? How much do, do we desire to honor and glorify God above all things? Maybe a better question is, how high is your glory in your life? How much do you strive for your own personal benefit, your own gain? How high is your glory on the priority list of your life? When you look forward to the next season of life, as we're all starting some type of new season, the question is, well, what are you most excited about? What what are you joyful about as you look ahead to this next season? Or maybe a better question is, what are you worried about? What scares you? What, what causes conflict within you? What, are, what makes you anxious? Are you excited about maybe at the end of this season I'll get a bonus check? Maybe, maybe at the end of this quarter, right, I'll get, I'll get some advancement. Maybe at the end of this, this season, I'll have some, some new friends or new relationships or, 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 or I'll have some status that I didn't have before. Are you mostly focused on your gain or God's glory? Because this could be a season where you say, God, I want to glorify you in this next season of my life. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure how it's going to come down. But no matter what happens, I want your glory to be my priority. Listen, God might glorify you by blessing you and prospering your life through advancement or success. But at the same time, he also might give you a chance to bring him glory through suffering joyfully or through loss. Or glorify God in the midst of pain like David is right now. And so whatever God has for you in this next season, the question is, is his glory your priority? Are you devoted to saying, whatever my life holds, God, I want to glorify you. One of the things I've always wanted to characterize my life and ministry is that I care more about God's kingdom than my own. And how many of you know that's really hard? You know, like I, I, I want to be about his glory and his name above my name. I want his glory to be above my glory. And, and what I'm realizing is actually 
that's not true about me most of the time. Actually, I struggle with that the majority of the time. Anybody else? Like my thoughts, my heart, my direction, my, my desires so many times, it really put me first, maybe God second. But really, a man after God's own heart is constantly repenting of that and saying, God, I want to be about your glory all of the time. I, I know that I struggle with this because of how frustrated I get when things don't go my way. Anybody? If I don't get what I want, I throw the adult temper tantrum. Maybe not physically, outwardly, but inwardly, I'm throwing a fit. Anybody? And so I get frustrated when things don't go my way, when I, when I feel betrayed, when I feel like injustice is happening to me. Well, at the same time, I need to continue to understand that I actually deserve nothing. That comes because I feel like maybe I deserve something or I'm owed something or that I'm worthy of something. And so I'm learning that, that God's glory is about him and not about me. I also find myself sometimes getting jealous towards others about career path or or finances or things and I just get frustrated and just maybe covet status or affirmation and and I don't know about you but I feel like God is continuing to change and shape my heart primarily through breaking my heart by breaking me of the things of this world by showing me how much I actually care about those things that are linked to my personal glory and so I've come to understand the ultimate purpose of man is to glorify God. And the ultimate purpose for my life is to glorify God. And so a devotion to God's glory should not simply be our desire, but rather we need to understand that's exactly what my heart needs. You know the difference? This is what I want. This is what I need. I remember going to the toy store with my dad, we were shopping for someone else, and I showed my dad this thing, and I say, Dad, I want this so bad. And he looks at me and he says, Son, he says, Do you want that or do you need it? Guess what I said? I need this, right? But your father knows what you need even before you ask. And so, and so I'm thinking about how, how not only is God's glory should be something that we desire to have, but it's something that we need. We desperately need to have God's glory at the center of our heart. And so that's what makes David a man after God's own heart. Number two, he has a devotion to God's glory, but he also has a desire for mercy. What's most amazing to me is that throughout David's lament, there's not one negative word about Saul. How many of you would speak negative of someone who tries to kill you over and over and over again? There's not one word about, oh man, finally, he got what he deserved. You see, you mess with the bull, you get the horn. But there's not, there's not one instance where he, he, he puts Saul down. It's, it's filled with, with, with such compassion. And look at, look at verse 23. He says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. Is that what you call your enemies? 
beloved and lovely. In a life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep. Weep over Saul. He clothed you with luxuries, Lee and scarlet, and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Someone who's trying to kill you, you would expect vengeance, right? You would expect uh, repercussions. You would expect anger. You would, you, would, you would expect lashing out. But this, this is more like love for your enemies. I believe the Messiah said that. Think about that, like after Saul tries to cast him out, hunt him, kill him, he has nothing but praise. As you follow David throughout his life over the next several chapters, what dominates his rise to kingdom is his desire for mercy. He mourns the death of his political rivals. He throws feasts for them when they want to reconcile. That's what we should do. Mourn the loss of friends or those who stab us in the back. And really rejoice if they desire to reconcile. Most of David's men, they want to execute vengeance on Saul's men. They wanted to chase him through the wilderness. But David, he keeps saying, no, 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 no. This kingdom is God's kingdom. And this kingdom is not marked with vengeance. This kingdom is anchored in mercy. And mercy brings about the peace that lasted David's entire life. David Acting in mercy was a display that he was a man after God's own heart. And acting in mercy is the fruit of those who've experienced mercy. If you think about the New Testament, there's another guy that received a ton of mercy. So there's this man who is also named Saul in the New Testament, but his name changed to Paul. And Saul was on his horse ready to persecute and kill Christians, those who followed Jesus. In, in, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul, who came to Christ, has been transformed by Christ. And listen, listen to what he says. Um, I'll, I'll start in verse 13. Paul says, formerly I was a blasphemer. I spoke so harshly against God. He says, I was a persecutor. I would try to hurt people who claimed Christ. He says, I was an insolent opponent, but I received what? I received mercy. I didn't receive what I deserved. I received, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus the saying is trustworthy and full, uh, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. I'm the worst. You spoke the name of Jesus around me, I would kill you. I would put you in prison. I hated God. Listen, I am the worst, but I Receive what? I received mercy. And he says, I actually received it for this reason. So that in me, in my life, 
in the way that I live as the foremost, as the worst of the worst, so that in me, in my life, Jesus Christ might be the display of his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in his name for eternal life. Isn't it amazing how Paul says, there is not a hole too deep, there is not a darkness too dark, there is not a sin that is too much that the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover. He says, I was the worst, I was the foremost. If you want to compare spiritual resumes, I was the greatest. If you want to compare the darkest of sins, I was the greatest. And Christ showed me mercy. So that through my life, I could be a man after God's own heart that would again give Mercy, it amazes me how many Christians who say, yes, I received mercy, yet refuse to give it. Yet refuse to live in it. Why? Because I deserve. I deserve respect. I deserve you to treat me a certain way. I deserve these things. Well, let me tell you, when you stand before God, what do you deserve? Nothing. You actually deserve the wrath. But he gives you mercy. That's the definition. So let me ask you, have you received the mercies of God on your life? Have you received not what is due to you, but what you do not deserve? Have you received the mercy of God so listen, I ask you that because as you move forward in this season, let me tell you something. It's not all rainbows and sunshine. There's going to be moments, there's going to be instances, there's going to be people, there's going to be times where you're going to have to decide, do I want justice or mercy? And so we need to understand that we've received the mercies of God and so maybe the question as we move forward in the season is, who do you need to be merciful to? Who are you carrying a grudge against? Who are you, are you holding their trespasses against them? And not seeking to display the perfect patience of God in your life. Or maybe the question is, from whom do you need to receive mercy from? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Who, you, who do you need to say that, that, that thing that I did was not glorifying to God and I need your grace and I need your mercy for forgiveness? Let me just tell you something right, right off the bat. I don't know if you've been here for a long time or this is your first Sunday, but this church will never be a church that doesn't need your mercy. We'll never get there, this side of heaven. I will never be a pastor that doesn't need your grace and your mercy. I need it. I am not perfect. I am not the savior. I am not the king of kings. I am at God's mercy. And so as a church, when we move forward and God begins to develop a people after his own heart, it must have the definition of God's glory 
and a desire for mercy. We will be a people who desires mercy for others, a people who live after God's own heart. Okay, number three, and the last one is this. God's glory, the display of mercy, and a posture of submission. David never wanted to go to the throne by taking matters into his own hands, which is why he could lament the death of the king, right? I mean, if David just wanted to do it, he could have done it. If David just wanted to take the throne and take matters in his own hands, he could have just gone after it. But David understood you never achieve the purposes of God by compromising the commands of God. And and I say that before, but listen, if, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. We don't achieve the purposes of God in our lives as a family, as a church, as a people by simply compromising the commands of God. You know what's gonna move us ahead real, real quickly is if we just simply command or, or, or compromise the scripture. Let's just tell people what they wanna hear. Let's just tell people that there's a better way. Let's just lay it on thick and let's, let's, let's take these things into our own hands. Countless times throughout David's life, David had an opportunity to force his way to the throne. You remember the cave incident? He could have taken Saul. The great temptation for you and I is to pursue some good purpose, some good thing that you believe that God wants you to have, but by pursuing it in our own means, in our own strength, for our own glory. Let me say that again. The greatest temptation for you and I is to actually pursue something good, but pursue it in our own strength for our own glory. The greatest temptation is not to pursue bad things, but good things by our own means. So what we do is we say, okay, I know that God wants me, you know, to grow in this area or be like this, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I'm going to overwork. I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm gonna neglect this and put my priority on this. I'm gonna make this happen. I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I'm gonna compromise the standards. I'm gonna leave this relationship and go after this one because this is my king, my my comfort, my joy, my happiness. This is my purpose. This is what I want. And so I'm gonna compromise. And it's not that big of a deal. As long as I'm happy, as long as I'm secure, as long as I get the king that I want. I guarantee you one of the biggest temptations in our lives is to take up the crown for ourselves. David's posture is one of waiting on the Lord. David's posture is one of submission. Trust God. Trust God's timing. Trust God's way. And so it's not that David is passive, sitting around on his mom's couch in the basement somewhere playing video games. He's actually active, pursuing God. And so he doesn't figure out what he wants to do and then ask God to bless it. Let me tell you that again, because maybe we can relate. He doesn't tell God what he wants to do and then ask God to bless that. He asks God, God, what do you want to do and I'll follow you in that. Do you see the difference? And so this is a posture of submission. Just look at how chapter two opens. 
It says, after this, David inquired of the Lord, Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord just said to him, go up. Great. David said, well, which one should I go to? And he said, go to Hebron. And then David went. Okay. Success is joining God in what he wants to do around us. Success is not attempting great things for God and then asking God to bless those things. Success is discerning where is God at work and how can I join him in that? You see, a lot of us, we go through life backwards. We assume that God put us on this earth to fix things. Because we're awesome. And so I can figure this out. I can make this thing happen. And so our general posture is, God, this is what I think is broken. This is what I think needs to fix it. And so will you help me fix it? But in every aspect of scripture, God is the author. God is the director. God is the primary agent. God is the primary actor. God is the one that brings salvation, brings redemption, brings reconciliation, puts what is broken back together. God is the active one that brings salvation and blessing to all the people of all the earth. And our job then is to discern where he is at work and how can I join him in it. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Do you realize God is not lacking? He doesn't need you to do something for him. He's working. And we would submit ourselves to say, I want to join you, God, in what you're doing. So in John chapter 5, Jesus, he heals a blind, paralyzed man. And it just so happens that Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. Now, For the Jews, the Sabbath was a sacred day. You don't do any work on the Sabbath. That is blasphemous before God. And so Jesus, in in John chapter 5, I'll flip there. In John chapter 5, he heals this man on the Sabbath. Check this out. So in verse 16, he heals this man, and it says, chapter 5, verse 16, and it says, this was why... The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. How dare him? Look at what verse 17 says. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. Now he used the word working on the Sabbath in order to be clear on what he's doing. (laughs) Did you know God is working every day? God is working every moment. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And this says that he's making himself equal with God. That's exactly what he's doing. They wanted to kill him, not just simply because he was doing things on the Sabbath, but because he was making himself equal with God. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. 
oh, if that would be us. Whatever I see God doing, I want to join him in that. A person after God's own heart surrenders to join God to what he's doing. So what does that exactly mean? Well, let me just tell you, sometimes there's a divine call. So, so Paul, in the book of Acts, he has this vision of a man from Macedonia who's saying, hey, will you come to us? And so he sees that that is a divine call from God, and he, and he goes. But most of the time, it's probably just through the Holy Spirit just kind of convicting our heart. How many of you have experienced that? You're having a conversation You're talking with someone. God brings someone into your path, puts you in a place to participate and be able to share the good news of Jesus with that person. Hospitality, goodness, mercy, grace, all of those things are opportunities for us to be a part of what God is doing. And so that's what Jesus does with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, remember? For this woman, God created a sense of dissatisfaction in her, which means she had to go to the well in the middle of the day and and, and brought her to a place where Jesus was. It just so happens the Messiah is there. And, And so God brought this woman and the Messiah, Christ himself, Jesus together, and he begins to explain to her living water and life. So one of my prayers for us as a church is that God would open our eyes and our ears to see where God is moving and that we would be quick to join him in it. But I'm sad to say that most of my life, I've probably done the opposite. I've assumed that my responsibility is to fix everything, that my responsibility is to be the hero and just seek his help in helping me be that. But listen, redemption, reconciliation, right, salvation, that's his job, amen? It's always his job. I'm not the savior, I'm not the redeemer. I don't have or possess, or you and I, we don't have the power to resurrect anything. My job is just to join him in what he's doing. And so listen, if you remember anything or anything from today, remember this, success equals submission to God. That's success. And so we see three amazing attributes in David. A devotion to God's glory, a desire for mercy, and a posture of submission. And yet, despite these three qualities, David is not the king we're searching for. Why? Why is a leader that possesses these qualities not the savior we're looking for? Because David does not possess the ability to address our deepest problem. In the next five chapters are some of the craziest stories you'll find in the Bible. Let me just give you a snapshot. David's anointed as king. One of Saul's sons decide he's going to anoint himself. So now you have two kings, and when you have two kings, you have war. Two kings, two generals, two armies. I know, let's get these armors together and let's figure out who's gonna be the champion. 
They line up the armies, instead of killing everybody and everyone, they decide, let's pick 12 guys. We'll do it Royal Rumble style. We'll put them in a cage, they'll fight each other, and if whoever's standing at the end, that's who's gonna be the victor. And so they line these 12 guys up, and what happens is at the same time, in like this circle kind of fashion, each one of them grabs the other by the beard and stabs them in the gut, and they all die. Wow. But... Apparently, one of David's men is standing, and so it seems that David's side wins. And so the generals of the other side, they take off. They flee for his life. One of the generals uh, uh, sleeps with his stepmom, pretty radical, right? He thinks that's going to get him in trouble with the self-appointed king, and so he runs away from the king, and then he decides, okay, well, if that king doesn't like me anymore, I'm going to go try and make alliance with David. So he goes to David, and he tries to make a deal, some negotiations. One of David's generals say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about the details of this negotiation over here in this dark hallway, which is code for I'm about to stab you in the gut. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in the northern kingdom, two of the the other soldiers murdered Saul's son in his sleep. They cut off his head. They put it in a box, and they bring it to David and say, David, we got a prize for you. Look in the box. And he opens the box, and apparently they missed the memo from chapter 1, how David doesn't tolerate that, and so he kills these two jokers. Now, the point is not. I know what you're thinking. The point is not, this would make a great Netflix series. Let's get that on the charts. No, the point is, David inherits a broken nation. A nation that is deeply divided. People are a mess. The nation is saturated with evil and fear. It's divided. It's desperate. They have no direction. The kingdom is full of revenge and injustice and bloodshed and hostility to righteousness. And pretty soon, the whole thing's about to unravel. It's going to have complete destruction. And Israel's problem is too deep for even a man after God's own heart to solve. Let me just tell you something. There is not a political leader or some government system or some church campaign or some sermon series that we could do that would somehow put an end to injustice and bring peace. There is not a system, a law, or a leader that could somehow cure our greed, our envy, our selfishness, our pride, our worship of self, or the other 10,000 crooked iniquities that every one of us faces. But I'm not saying at the same time there's no hope for righteousness. I'm saying that we need, humanity needs, a different kind of savior. A savior king who can heal us in places that no system could, that religious actions cannot touch. We need a different transformation. And so my prayer is through this scripture, as dark as it seems, that we would see the promised savior king Come, we would see the promise that in the line of David, another king would be born. Savior Christ, the King of Kings. Unlike David, this king lived a sinless life, and Jesus didn't use his power to take from others, he used his power to lay down that life for his enemies, 
even those who don't deserve it, like me. Jesus was not just simply a man after God's own heart, but he gave his heart. Through his death and resurrection, he releases in the world the power of the Holy Spirit who can transform our lives if we would submit, who would heal us from the inside out, not the outside in, who would put back together all of the broken places. David is not the king that you need. Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just a man who was honorable to God's glory and loved God's mercy and submitted to his father. Jesus was God in the flesh who gave up his heart in order to give us a new heart. And so the question is this, have you received Jesus as your great Savior King? Because that would be the greatest new beginning of your entire life. As we enter new beginnings in this season, the greatest new beginning is the one who surrenders to Jesus Christ. King David comes to the throne when there's oppression and bloodshed and injustice. Jesus came and was oppressed, was nailed unjustly, and shed his blood. The last notes that you can take is this. The cross of Christ, we see the posture of submission. In the forgiveness of Christ, we see a desire for mercy. And in the faithfulness of Christ, we see a devotion to God's glory. And so today, Jesus offers a new heart. Jesus offers us new beginnings. Jesus offers repentance where we fall short, all of those who trust and follow him. And so right now, I'm gonna ask us, every one of us, to right where we are, to just get in this posture of submission. Will you pray with me? I wanna invite every one of you right now to just simply close your eyes and bow your heads. We don't do this often in our world, but we don't still our hearts. But right now, I'm asking you to just simply still your heart. With every eye closed and with every head bowed, I wanna remind you that this is our posture of submission. Will you right now just put down everything that you have in your hands and just simply just open your hands, just kind of palm up to the Lord right now. It's not like a fancy hocus pocus thing, but it's just a symbol of us saying, I surrender. Right now, will you open your hands to God and say, God, I wanna be the person that surrenders my glory for your glory. I wanna be one who surrenders my kingdom for your kingdom. And when we open our hands like this, we're asking God, God, I'm receiving whatever you have for me in this season. Whatever you have, oh God. Right now with our eyes closed and our hands open, you need to ask God for his grace and his mercy. Ask him right now. Ask him to place the mercy and the blood that he poured out for you into your life. Ask him to wash you and forgive you. And the word says that he will. Just simply confess that you're not worthy of his presence. You're not worthy of his forgiveness. 
yet he gives it. And so as a church with our hands open and our hearts surrendered, we ask you, oh God, to meet us right here in this place. Change us. Shape us. Let our identity in you drive us to do what you're doing. Oh, Jesus, we pray in your great name.